Let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Galatians as we continue the series of Biblical Foundations for Change. And I don't think you can talk about that subject without talking about the powerful and the efficacious ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So today, for our scripture reading, we will be looking at Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25, as we consider the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of talk in theological circles about the sufficiency of the scriptures, that the scriptures are sufficient and everything we need for a life of faith and practice. And then there's a, a lot of scripture dealing with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished. But today we're going to be looking at the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit and his role in changing us more and more into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the most beautiful human being in terms of character and person who ever lived. And our heart's desire is to be beautified And that is exactly what holiness is and the object and work of the Holy Spirit. So if I can stop talking long enough, we'll read the scripture now. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, that is, as a habit or practice, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit this is God's word let us pray our father and our God as we approach this text today how we need the ministry of your spirit who indwells us to become for us the one who enlightens us and helps us understand the truth and the depth of what's going on in this passage. And so we pray that the spirit would both empower the one who preaches your word, which shall never return to you void or empty, but will prosper where you send it and accomplish all of your purposes. And may your spirit open blinded eyes. May he unstop deaf ears. May he melt hard hearts. And may he speak a word of grace to all who hear 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How does gospel freedom result in actual life change? And it is through a twofold discipline, so to speak, identifying and destroying our particular forms of self righteousness and testing and strengthening and living out of our consciousness of our participation in Christ. And so what I want to do first as we look at this passage is sort of give you a global maps view of the passage. I want you to see it from above before we get down in it and unpack it. And so the globe, uh, the, the, uh, I hate to use the word Google in the sermon, but the Google Maps position is as follows. Paul is right in the middle of a passage. If you look up the page, just look up the page to chapter uh, 5 and verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is accusing this church of practicing Christian cannibalism. Not literally, but spiritually chewing, devouring one another, biting one another. Things like talking behind other people's backs, gossiping, pointing out, people's flaws, uh, thinking you're better than other people, being conceited or superior, or being defensive and hostile. But these actions were going on, and that is what led the Apostle Paul to talk about this concept that, uh, of two antithetical opposing powers and realms that we as believers live in. One of them is called flesh, and the other is called spirit. We were in the flesh, but now as a result of redemption in Christ and regeneration, we are in the Spirit. We live in the realm of the Spirit, but the flesh hasn't gone away. You see, there's an overlap of the two ages. The Bible speaks of the present evil age, which is running now. And the Bible speaks of the age to come, which is the new age, the age in which the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the powers of the age to come have broken into and perforated space and time right now in creatures who are believers in Jesus Christ. And so we live in the overlap of the two ages, and there is a radical tension between flesh and spirit. Now, a lot of people think flesh is simply something called sin nature. I think that's a totally inadequate way to understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about, for lack of a better term, the eschatological spirit. The spirit coming to us now and indwelling us as believers. His being has penetrated my being. He, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within me. But that creates incredible tension with me who still lives in the sphere and age of the flesh. And it has desires. And so both the flesh and the spirit have desires. Now, 
The passage basically tells us this, and this is your overview before I unpack details. He speaks of the power and the, of the Spirit and the power of the flesh in verses 16 through 18. The flesh has over-desires that drive us away from the Spirit, and the Spirit in us also has strong desires which become our deepest desires, that is, what we really want. To be in the flesh equals being under the law. And idolatrous over-desires are produced by self-righteous ways of trying to be our own Savior. That's what the flesh is. In verses 19 through 21, he gives us the marks of gratifying the flesh, or the works of the flesh. And the marks of the flesh are irreligious, that is, sexual immorality, idolatry, occult practices, substance abuse. In verses 19 through 21, he gives us religious or moral flesh, party spirit, jealousy, pride, selfishness, envy, unreconciled relationships. And he tells us if these are habitual, it indicates that you're not really a Christian at all. And then in verses 22 to 23, he gives us the marks of walking by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. The fruit of living by the gospel, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, integrity, humility, self-control. They aren't the result of keeping rules, but they result in kept rules. And so then he talks about the discipline of walking in the Spirit, that we first have to crucify the flesh, recognize and repent of its self-righteous strategies, and also listen to the Spirit and see what he says and live in accordance with him and act in alignment with the gospel. So what are the two spheres of influence that a Christian lives in? And they are the flesh and the spirit. And they are two motivational systems. They are two internal dynamics. And they both have desires. The flesh that I live in, that's part of who I am uh, in my being, because I'm not totally renewed yet, has desires. And it has desires in opposition and against the spirit. And then he turns around and says the same thing about the Spirit. The Spirit has desires. The flesh, however, has over-desires. The Spirit has legitimate desires. And so he's telling us that normal Christian living should produce in you an amazing amount of tension. Are you aware of that tension? Do you know you're a walk in civil war? Are you aware that there are desires in you that come from the Spirit's work in your heart, and there are desires that come to you from your flesh in sin and temptation? And do you know that you have the option to choose either as a believer? You can either choose to submit to the Spirit and walk in Him and live out of His resources and be empowered by Him and, and be obedient to Him, or you can fall and be deceived by the flesh. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. On the one hand, Paul speaks of flesh. In the Greek, it's the word sarx. And the flesh is opposed to the Spirit. It doesn't refer to our physical nature, uh, but rather our spiritual nature, but to the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. 
How do we know that? When we look at the list of the works of the flesh, we see hatred, jealousy, ambition, envy. They have nothing to do with the physical body at all, but with the spirit. Other works of the flesh have something to do with the body. Therefore, flesh is our sinful heart. It is that part or aspect of our hearts which has not yet been renewed by the Spirit. Even though we have the Holy Spirit, we do not yet possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That will not come until Christ returns. So that is why we struggle. That is why there is tension. That is why you don't need to beat yourself up when you sense these competing desires. As a matter of fact, if you don't have competing desires, you may not be a Christian. Because the powers of the age to come have already broken into our lives. And we're living in that sphere of influence of the Spirit's promptings, the Spirit's power, the Spirit's work. And yet at the same time, we still have the desires of the flesh raging in us. And both are true. And so when Paul speaks of the Spirit and the battle inside of us, he's talking about uh, both producing qualities of character within us because of the desires, and conflict takes place. And so that is what he's saying. But how do they influence? Well, Paul talks about the desires of each realm, the spirit realm and the fleshly realm. Both in verses 16 and 24, Paul calls the desires of the flesh a Greek word called epithumia. Thumia means to desire. Epi means to over. The word means to over-desire. And so the flesh is that which is in us that causes us inordinate or over-desire, and an all-controlling drive and longing. It means the main problem of our heart is not so much desires for bad things, but our over-desires even for good things. When our good things become our God or, our, or salvation, it creates within us over-desires and what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. But let me disabuse you of a notion. When the Bible uses the term lust, it's not always talking about sexual things, okay? I mean, if I use the word lust, 95% of people think he's talking about sex. No, it's the over-desires for anything. And that's what the flesh does in us. It produces that. And so, when we look at that carefully, we can see that inordinate desires for something... Uh, lays bare the grasping and demanding nature of the human heart as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Uh, this idolatry of the heart which we've talked about before. But let's talk about the powerful desires of the Spirit. One of the most intriguing statements is in verse 17 which says, The flesh over-desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Paul never says the Spirit over-desires. How could he possibly do that? He's God. Yet the construction indicates that the Spirit, Holy Spirit, has passions and yearnings as well, and they come on us at least as strong as the flesh. What is it that the Spirit longs for in me? Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit will come into the world to glorify me. 
while our flesh glorifies and adores and lusts after all kinds of created things and conditions and people, the Spirit glorifies and yearns for Jesus. The Spirit speaks of the beauty and greatness of Christ. The Spirit then longs to show us Christ and to conform us to Him. A, you know, people used to ask me all the time when I was a younger preacher, are you Spirit-filled? Now that's a little bit of a loaded question, right? Those of you who remember those days, you either had it or you didn't have it. And if you're a Spirit-filled preacher, that means what? You have the gifts of the Spirit, you have the infilling of the Spirit, and uh, you know you can speak in other tongues, and you can prophesy and do all these things. You know what the Bible says a Spirit-filled person is? A person who adores Jesus. Christ's adoration is a mark of the Spirit's filling. He will take my things, the things of me, Jesus said, and show them to you. How do you know the Holy Spirit's working in your heart? How do you know His desires are happening in your heart? Because you begin to adore and love Jesus more than you ever had. Jesus becomes beautiful to you. That's powerful. But that is precisely, exactly what the Apostle is saying here. So which nature or which realm or which set of desires does the Christian truly want? And Paul makes a telling statement here when he says, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And there's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, I delight in the law in my inmost being, yet he discerned a power in my members at war with the principle of my mind, bringing me captive. In other words, the Spirit is what we most deeply want. And yet the flesh continues to generate in us alternate desires, which we can experience, which we can give into, but which now contradict our most abiding love and goals. Nobody gets as hurt and sick over sin like a Spirit-filled Christian. Nobody grieves over sin like a Christian in whom the Spirit is working. That is His powerful ministry. If you can sin <laughs> and get away with it without any feelings of grief that you have wounded your Father's love, you have wounded Jesus' heart, you have grieved the Holy Spirit, then I would wonder if the Spirit of God really dwells within you. And that's what we truly want. The person who's been born from above, who's been born again, has both sinful desires and godly desires, but we most truly want what the Spirit in us wants. And so this statement is filled with hope and affirmation. Even when we're falling into sin, we can say with Paul, this is not really who I am. I am acting contradictory to who I really am and what I really want and what I really desire. And I would love it if I never sinned again. I would love it. I think that would be heaven. One time uh, there was an interview uh, in the archives. I think I saw it at Mark and Terry Anderson's house where they were interviewing, was it the kids in the church interviewing 
some of the church members asking them what about what's great about heaven and of course everybody gave their answers but Woody Woods I'll never forget what he said he says the greatest thing about heaven is I I Woody Woods will never sin again is that how you see your sin? Do you see your sin as something that grieves you deeply? That is a sense of heaviness over you. What love we have offended. And yet, the Spirit gives us great hope. We can live by the Spirit. We can be led by the Spirit. In verse 16, being led by the Spirit is contrasted with the flesh, but in verse 18, being led by the Spirit is contrasted with being under the law. For Paul, then, each is a different way of speaking about the same thing. This tells us not just something about the actions of the flesh, but also about the motives of the flesh. Not just that it disobeys God, but why it wants to disobey God. And the flesh is that within us, which wants to be our own Savior and Lord. The flesh, then, is how the heart continues to function under law, how it continues to reject the free gift of Christ's righteousness and salvation and continues to seek it on its own. Therefore, the sin underneath, all sins, the motive for our disobedience, is always a lack of trust in God's grace and His goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives as we try to save ourselves, or what I call self-justification strategies. In the light of this, then, we can see that the two sets of desires that Paul speaks of are really two semi-intact motivational systems within us. A motivational system is centered on the goal that the imagination finds beautiful and desirable. The goal generates what we perceive as needs and drives for it. The flesh is really our old motivational system with its own goals and thus its own needs and drives are still, at some level, intact. But as we have seen, sin is slavery because... Its goals, earning worth and righteousness through service to whatever idols I have, focuses on some ab object of the flesh and turns it into an idol which I use to save myself. I can have worth if I'm loved, or I can have a good career, or if my children love me, which then creates drives and over-desires for that. But what are some common mistakes people make about what it means to crucify the flesh because this is a big issue in this passage in the light of verse 18 what does it mean to crucify the sinful nature or the flesh with its over desires and why do you think Paul uses the term crucify here um, in this passage rather than some other what then does it mean to live or walk by the Spirit and here are three common mistakes that I have seen in my own life and in the lives of others. Many people over the years have made the mistake of thinking that verse 24 means to frustrate the flesh uh, or the fulfillment of our desires uh, by crucifying the flesh, and that means something like this. Be hard on yourself, especially your body. For example, it's an old tradition to give up something for Lent. Usually this means to refuse to satisfy some of our needs for rest or comfort or pleasure. This is a serious mistake. 
That is not what Paul is talking about at all here. The flesh is idolatrous over-desires that arise from the heart that is afraid to trust God and desires rather to be its own Lord and Savior. The Desert Fathers, as many of you know, uh, practiced asceticism, rigorous, ruthless, self-denial, even castration. I, I remember reading one, <laughs> one Desert Father who went through the process of castration in children. You might want to ask mom and dad what that is. I'm not telling you. But he did do this, thinking it would quench what? All sexual desires. Guess what happened? Didn't work. So what do you do then? Where do you go after that? It didn't work. He still had the desires. He still struggled with the desires. So this whole idea of, of a mistake by, it could be a stoic stiffening of the will against sin. In other words, people think they're crucifying the flesh when they say, just say no to sin. But we have seen that the flesh is the desire to return to a life under law. It is a primordial self-righteousness that rejects salvation by sheer grace alone and insists on self-salvation and thus turns a good thing into an idle Savior which we then over-desire. All of our worries, all of our fears, all of our bitternesses and entrenched bad habits come from these over-desires. So to just say no without examining motives underneath the behavior can actually be a part of a new spiritual slavery. And so people tend to turn the gospel into a new law, a new law of doing more, trying harder. And then there's a third mistake that people often make. Uh, Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20 says we have been crucified with Christ. And many people have thought that, that, is just, that this is just the same thing as that. But in the former passages, the verb is passive and indicates that we have been crucified as something which has been done to us. But here, crucifixion is something we do to our flesh. In fact, Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20 refer to the objective status our salvation brings us. We're free from condemnation of sin, as if we'd already paid the penalty by our own death. And that's what it means when we're crucified with Christ. But Galatians 5.24 is talking about a subjective aspect of salvation, that we are to put the flesh to death within us. So what in the world does that mean? I'm so happy you asked, because I'm about to tell you. Rather than these mistaken notions, crucifying the flesh is really nothing more or less than identifying and dismantling the idols in your heart. It means putting an end to the ruling and attractive power that idols have in our lives, and thus to destroy their uh, ability to agitate and inflame our thoughts and desires. Verse 24 is about withering sin at a motivational level. Um, real change happens rather than just behavioral level. It's working at the motivational level. It's working in depth in us. Uh, real changes in our lives cannot proceed without discerning our characteristic flesh, the particular idols and desires that come from it. And so as we say that, we learn to say to ourselves, Lord, my deceptive heart thinks I have to have this or I have no value. I have a pseudo-savior. 
But that is to forget what I mean to you as I see in Christ. By your Spirit, I will reflect on your love for me and in Him until this loses its attractive power over my soul. I've been at this for 40-something years, trying diligently to walk with Christ. And the only thing I have found that causes is, is a sermon I preached earlier, the expulsive power of a new affection. Once I focus and meditate and muse and uh, devour Christ's love for me, it weakens and even mars or destroys the beauty of the other things that attract me. Things in the realm of the flesh that attract me can only be withered and driven out by something more beautiful and more attractive. And guess who that is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. And finally, I was going to try to walk through... Oh, i got a lot more time. I thought it was 15 minutes later than it is. You're really listening fast today. Let's go. So what does it mean to walk or keep in step with the Spirit? To walk by the Spirit, then we understand something more than simple obedience, though it is that. It's not less than that. But verse 25 literally says we must keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a living person who glories in and magnifies the work of Jesus. John tells us all about in his gospel in chapters 14 through 16. Once we specifically find the particular false belief our flesh generates, the over-desires that lead us to sin, we must replace them with Christ. It's not an intellectual exercise. We must worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, adoring Him until our hearts find Him more beautiful than the object which we felt we had to have. Now, he mentions two other things in this passage that I want to touch on quickly. And that is, what are the marks of the flesh? Or the desires of the flesh, what are they? Um, and there are probably three categories in verses 19 to 21. There, there are words that have to do first with the works of the flesh in the area of sexuality. First is sexual immorality. That's the word pornea. And the word pornea has to do with any sex that, sexual practice or engagement that involves anyone other than a man and a woman in the covenant bonds of marriage. Otherwise, it's flesh and it's idolatry. And so it's sexual intercourse between people who are not in a married relationship. Impurity uh, refers to unnatural sexual practices, while debauchery refers to uncontrolled sexuality. You look at our culture today, you are seeing, writ large, in our culture today, flesh and the expressions of it. And sometimes we Christians get shocked by that. I'm often shocked that we don't see more of it. Probably a lot of it happens that we don't see, and thank God we don't. But flesh is rampant. And there are words that have to do with the area of religion. Uh, idolatry is paired with witchcraft, pharmakia, which we get the word pharmacy from. 
is not referring to a very broad, inclusive practices of making good things like a career into a god. Rather, he is referring to very specific occult and pagan religious practices. Idolatry and sorcery were examples of the sins of pagan worship. The first, providing an inadequate substitute for God, and the second, counterfeiting the works of the Spirit. The eight words that describe how the flesh destroys relationships. The first one is selfish ambition, erathia, has a sense of competitiveness and self-seeking. Envy, which is called coveting, a desire for what other people have and wanting them not to have it. Jealousy means zeal, but it means a zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. Hatred, which is a general word for hostility and adversary attitude. Not the devil's advocate, just the devil. (laughs) And therefore, as we look at these things, four words then describe the result of these attitudes in relationships. There's discord, which means argumentative and fight-picking behavior. Fits of rage, which are outbursts of anger, leading to dissensions, divisions between people, factions, permanent parties, and warring factions. These all lead to Christian cannibalism. There are two words that refer to substance abuse. One, drunkenness is linked to orgies, which are not sex orgies per se, but drinking orgies. And one of the works of of the flesh is addiction to pleasure-creating substances and behavior. And so another way to categorize the works of the flesh is those that are characteristic of religious people, irreligious people, etc. But these are destructive. They are destructive of the person following it and destructive of everyone who is in a relationship with them and it's it's uh it's an ugly ugly picture but then he gives us the wonderful fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit and while the flesh is chaotic uh, the beauty of the fruit of the spirit is the first one is love it is faith expressing itself through love and love here is a reflection of the love of god in christ completely undeserved by mankind, loving the unlovely, the unlovable, the unloving, and the Spirit pours that love into our hearts which leads to a giving, forgiving heart. The only one that can enable you to forgive offenders is when the Spirit's desires are being followed. And we, He creates in us love. And this love also is the love that keeps a husband and wife as husband and wife. And it is the love between Christ and his church. Joy is not human happiness, but is the result of having a deep security that is unperturbed by sorrow and tribulation. Indeed, it gives proof of its power precisely in the midst of trial and tribulation. Paul was a great model of this kind of joy. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict or war or trouble, but it denotes a state of wholeness and soundness and well-being, a life and a state in which man is rightly related to God and his neighbor. Patience, macrothumia, grace, graciously restraining punishment and wrath, 
suffering long, an attitude toward people that defers of one's anger under provocation and refuses to retaliate for wrongs done to self. Kindness, God's gracious attitude toward sinners, us being like Him in forbearing and being patient with the sin of other people. Goodness is moral excellence, an attitude of generation, uh, a generous uh, generosity, happy to do far more than whatever is required by mere justice. Faithfulness is fidelity, loyalty, trustworthy, describes a person whose faithful service we can rely on and whose loyalty we can depend on and whose word we can accept unreservedly and a person of inflexible, uh, unswerving uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Gentleness is a person whom strength and gentleness go together, a humble person, pliable, submissive to God's will, reflects itself in humility, patience, and forbearance with others. And then self-control, all of these, by the way, are not character qualities that we look at and we try to ape or imitate. These are the work of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I never loved anybody in my life until the Spirit produced love other than myself. That came quite natural. But these qualities that we see in the Spirit-filled life are fruit that is not produced by us. It's born by us, but it is produced when we keep in step with the Spirit. When His desires are the ones we uh, give in to, submit to. Uh, and then He produces this, this beautiful a well-rounded fruit in us um, in which, and notice at the end of the passage, he says, against which is no law. Uh, these fully meet and exceed the law. All the law can do for you is point out what the standard is, point out where you fail, but it cannot enable and it cannot produce in you what the Spirit of God can do. And so what Paul's trying to get across to these Galatian believers is this. You have heard all your life the importance of Torah, the law of God. But the law of God, while it reveals his righteous character, while it restrains corruption in a character, while it shows us our sin and drives us to Christ, can never sanctify you. Only the Spirit of God. It's like Paul is saying, under the new age in which the Spirit has come, indicating the last days are upon us and the Spirit indwells us, the Spirit can do in you what the law never could. And that's why legalism is such a nasty lie. It will never change you. It has no power. You're impotent, impotent under law, keeping by your own strength and resources. And so, Paul says... That remaining sin in our heart, the flesh, is dr the drive to continue to live under law. In other words, underneath every problem and difficulty is a residual self-righteousness, a leftover system of self-salvation. Why am I bitter? Why do we live in despair? Why are we worried? Because something more important than Jesus is operating as our functional righteousness and worth. 
Why do we do many of the good things we do? If we don't repent of self-righteousness under our sins, we won't be able to wither the real power and dynamic that fuels them. If we don't repent of the self-righteousness under our good deeds, we will set up ourselves up for anger and anxiety when things don't go well because we feel God owes us. The gospel leads us to repentance, not merely setting our will against superficialities. Without the gospel, uh, the heart will not be addressed. And so, in closing, this is in your bulletin if you want the quote, Luther says that for a Christian, all of life is continual joyful repentance. The passive righteousness is a mystery that Christians never completely understand and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, work it out in practice. For anyone who does not understand this righteousness or cherish it in the heart and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like passive righteousness. And so here's the whole sermon in a nutshell. And I like to try to do that. The Spirit is able to do what the law and you yourself could never do, and that is counteract the flesh. To extinguish the desires of the flesh by presenting us with a new set of desires. And so that's how you change, learning how to walk day by day in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to give serious thought to what you have heard today. Because if followed, it will produce in you the beauty of the Spirit's fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. We thank you for the beauty of this passage. It's convicting and yet it's powerful. It's uh, sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts us but it heals us. It exposes us but it covers us. And so we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the Spirit's indwelling which causes us to see him and want him and love him and desire him and want to be obedient to him to fear Him and respect Him and stand in awe of Him. Lord, won't You produce that in us today? Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who understand how much You have loved us and given Yourself for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.